few years ago, a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, asked if I wanted to go uh, with him on a study retreat. He had a friend, my friend had a friend, who owned a vacation home in the beautiful mountains of Utah. And so he said we could go there for, you know, four or five days, study, write, uh, and really get some, some things done all in this, this grand setting uh, in the mountains of Utah. And so I said, sure, I'm not going to pass that up. So we flew out to Utah, and this house was amazing. Uh, maybe, you know, orders of magnitude larger than my own actual house. Uh, it had a movie theater uh, in the basement. It had a, a jacuzzi. It had seven or eight bedrooms, so we could each kind of pick which bedroom we wanted to stay in and just claim our own wing of the house to sleep in and study in. Uh, it had a huge kitchen, and of course, all of it set in this unbelievable space uh, in the mountains. When we got there to the airport, uh, we were picked up by the property manager who drove us from the airport to this home. So, so on the way, my friend and I got to chatting with this property manager. And uh, he said, yeah, this is a great job. He used to be in a different career. He had retired from that career. And so now what he did was he managed 10 or 12 of these uh, very expensive vacation homes in the mountains of Utah uh, to have them ready and cleaned and all of that when their owners wanted to use them. And he was like, you know, in my free time, when I'm not doing that, I, you know, he can snowmobile, he can hike, whatever. It was a great job. And he said, sometimes I even get to participate in some of the blessings of these houses along with the families. I sometimes get to, to go in and eat meals with them uh, in these lavish homes. And, and sometimes I, I get to utilize the movie theater or whatever it may be. I get to participate. Sometimes I, I, I even get to interact with them with some well-known people, right? Because these are well-off people who own these homes. So he said, sometimes there are celebrities or well-known politicians that I get to spend time with. And we were like, man, that's really cool. And, and one of us, I don't remember which one of us, uh, my friend or I, one of us said to him, it's almost like you get to be a member of the family. And he said, no, no, no. He said, in all of this, as great as it is, I never can forget that I am more or less the help. And that, that phrase kind of, it stopped me in my tracks, right? Because I thought, he's not wrong. There is a difference, isn't there, between being a member of the family the family that owns the home, that has full access to all the blessings of the house. There's a, there's a difference between being in the family and being a servant of the family. There's a difference in access. There's a difference in relationship. If you're in the family, the house is really yours. You have an access to the owners. If, if you're the children, for example, of the, the parents who own the house, you have an access to them that, that the employee does not have. And even above all of it, you, you have a hope that the employee does not have, which is that one day you might inherit that house. You might actually get to own that house yourself. So you've got a hope for the future that the employee does not have. There is a distinction between a servant and a son. As we've been walking through the book of Romans, and especially Romans 6 through 8, Paul has really zeroed in for us on this distinction between servant and and child, between being an outsider and an insider, right? Between being somebody who's not in the family and somebody who is in the family. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ, what Paul has really been developing for us, especially in Romans 6 through 8, again, is if you know Jesus Christ, you are connected to God through Jesus, and therefore you're a member of God's family. 
here in Romans 8. He will use language of adoption. You've gone from outside to inside. You're a member of the family of God, and as a member of the family of God, you are an heir of all of the blessings of God now and in eternity. And in chapter 8 in particular, Paul has, has laid out maybe the greatest blessing of knowing God and being a member of his family, maybe the greatest one is the presence of God himself, that, that we know one day, for those who believe in Jesus, of course, uh, when we die or Jesus comes back, we'll be in the presence of God forever. But what Paul lays out for us in Romans 8 is if you know God through Jesus Christ, you actually live in the presence of God right now. That the presence of God lives within you through the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. So you actually live with the blessing of God's presence, an access to God that only family members can enjoy. And a promised inheritance that only family members can anticipate. You are no longer a servant living in fear of judgment under the law. You are now a son or a daughter of God in Jesus Christ, just like we sang, and you are privy to all of the blessings that flow from that. In the first part of Romans chapter 8, Paul has, had laid out that the means to spiritual transformation and growth, you remember, is not through a list of rules like the law, right? Because the, the Old Testament law gave us a list of commands, but didn't really give us the power to obey God. Now he says, if you know Jesus, you not only know God's standards, but you have the power to obey. That was Romans 8, 1 through 11. The presence of God, one of the blessings of the Spirit, is the power to obey where you could not previously obey. Here in, in verses 12 through 25, which we're going to be in today, Paul's now going to flesh out what are some of the blessings of living a Spirit-directed life. What are some of the blessings? Remember last week we talked about a, a Spirit-directed life, a Spirit-led life is one where I am, I am putting myself in a position on a day-to-day -day basis where I can hear from the voice of the Spirit, right? So that's why I read the Scripture, not to try to earn God's favor, but so I can hear from God's Word. This is why I pray, not because prayer gives me some sort of extra special brownie points with God, but prayer connects me with God so that as his child, I can hear from his Spirit. So Paul's going to say, when we're living that kind of life, what is that kind of life characterized by? And he will say it's characterized by unbelievable, incomparable blessings. One of them is that as we walk by the Spirit, we have an increasing assurance that we're God's children with the promise of an inheritance. He talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, in him, that is in in." God, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. That's us. To the praise of his glory. In other words, when you believed in Jesus and the Spirit moved in, the Spirit acts as a seal, a guarantee that you have an inheritance because you're a child of God. And if you have become a child of God, the Spirit now lavishes blessings on your life. And so uh, the gospel is good news, Paul will say in this passage, because the Spirit-directed life is a life beyond compare. There's no other life like it. 
Not, you can't find a life like it in the world. You can't find a life like it by following the demands of your flesh or pursuing sin. He's going to say the spirit-directed life, if the spirit is leading your life, this is a life of blessings beyond compare. So that what he's going to do in 8, 12 through 25 is say, if you're a child of God, here's what flows from that. Here's what will characterize your life if you're living a spirit-directed life. And so that's where we're going to begin in uh, verses 12 through 25, but let me ask this question quickly as, as we begin. Are you living a spirit-led life? That's going to be the question at the heart of Romans 8. As we, as we asked last week, are you daily, are you moment by moment by moment putting yourself in a place where the spirit can speak? Remember, we talked about like a tree planted by streams of water. A tree doesn't have to make itself bear fruit, remember? A tree just says, I'm going to be near the source of life. How do we do that as followers of Jesus? Again, this is what we call these spiritual habits or disciplines. They don't earn us God's favor, but they place us where we can hear God's voice. We pray. We meditate on his word. We memorize it. We gather with the community of saints, and we worship God together. And we serve and we worship so that we can be close to God. That's the spirit-led life. Are we living a spirit-led life? If so, Paul will say, here's the blessings that flow to the children of God who are living a spirit-led life. So follow with me. I'm going to start in verse 12. He says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he says, first of all, the Spirit-directed life is characterized by freedom from sin. Okay, so, so here's where he begins. He goes, look, uh, you are no longer obligated to listen to the voice of the flesh, but now you've got another option. And that other option is the way of the Spirit. As you pursue the way of the Spirit, that is going to lead to victory over or freedom from the, the power of sin in your life. Now, Paul is not saying that somehow you're going to be perfect in this life. He's not saying that you're going to get to a place where you no longer struggle with sin, where sin is no longer even a problem until you meet Jesus face to face. What he is saying, though, simply is this, that as you walk with Jesus more and more and more, over a period of, of a month, a year, a decade, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, I put myself in a place where I can hear from the Spirit, the Spirit will begin to transform me from the inside out. Remember, we, we saw this a couple weeks ago. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. None of those are things I do. All of those are, are attitudes of the heart that the Spirit works in me as I draw close to God, right? As those fruit are worked in my life, I begin to look more and more like the character of God and less and less like my flesh. What is my flesh? My flesh is simply that mindset that Paul described that opposes God. It comes from the sin nature. And the flesh is that mindset that says, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. The flesh, he says, leads to a life of death. Isolation from God isolation from other people, uh, and, and negative impact in my life, maybe even leading up to physical death, right? That's the flesh. That's where the flesh leads me. It leads me to things like greed and, and lust and anger and pride and strife and all of these things that he describes in Galatians 5. Now, here's the key of Romans uh, 8, 12, and 13. He says, before you knew Jesus, 
you only had one option. And that option was to follow the flesh. You were enslaved by the flesh. And you could make a list of rules like the law and and try to kind of muscle down and, and obey, but you couldn't obey. You didn't have it in you. But now you have another option. The power of the Spirit can transform your heart to obey God rather than sin. So he says you're no longer obligated to the flesh. Think of the flesh like a tyrannical master, an evil overlord. You don't have to obey it anymore. I've told, I've told some of y'all before about the very worst job that I ever had. The worst job I ever had was working in a patent law firm uh, in Dallas after my freshman year of college. A- at that time, I was still thinking about going into law. So I got this job at a law firm, and I thought, this will be great. I'll learn a little bit about the law. Maybe I'll get to, like, read some files and, like, help, help out, you know, with the law, with legal stuff. And so I got this job, pay, paid, like, I don't know, $6 an hour, and, and went into this law firm, and I was so excited. And I found out on the first day that what they wanted me to do was not help them with anything related to the law. What they wanted me to do was shred old files. And so they brought me into this enormous file room. I mean, wall to wall, uh, those big rolling shelves. I don't know if you've ever seen those that are just like wall to wall with thousands of files going back like literally 50 years. And they said, what we want you to do is shred every single one that predates like 1974 or something like that. I don't remember what the date was on it, but they were like, go through all of them, grab the old ones and just shred all of the really old ones. So what I did at this law firm while I was wearing like, you know, nice clothing inside, I mean, like that was, that was a perk. But what I did is I sat in a chair all summer, 10 weeks, eight hours a day next to a shredder and a large trash can. And I just went, and then I would dump it in. My friends would come visit and they'd be like, wow, this is impressive. You must be important. I'd be like, I am. Let me show you to my office, right? Next to the, the shredder and the giant garbage can. I was so glad when that job ended. At the end of the summer, now I want you to imagine that if today my boss from that job this week shows up in my office and says, hey, I found you. I have a stack of stuff to shred. What am I going to say to that guy? Like, how'd you get in here? Security, right? No, just kidding. We don't actually have security. People walk in there all the time, right? But what am I going to say? I don't have to listen to you anymore. I don't work for you anymore. I've been transferred out of your realm of authority into a new realm of authority. I'm no longer obligated to you. Paul says this is what has happened when you believed in Jesus. You're transferred into the kingdom of God from the kingdom of darkness. Prior to that, the only option you had was to listen to the flesh. Now you can listen to the voice of the Spirit, and he will transform you. He will change you into the character of Jesus Christ. It's a walk, not a run. It's a slow process, not a fast one. But over time, as you're planting yourself where the Spirit can speak, He will transform you. You're no longer obligated to the flesh. That way led to death. And here's here's where He's going to go next. He says, as you are transformed more and more into the character of God, into the character of Jesus Christ, now what you're going to experience is this closeness, this this relational intimacy with God like you could not experience before. That's where he takes us in verses 14 to 17. So follow with me. Verse 14, he says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. 
For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. All right, so he says, look, if you're led by the Spirit, your, your life is being directed by the Spirit, you're a son of God. And as a son of God, the Spirit of God is going to work within you. So you're going to find yourself crying out uh, more and more, Abba, Father, that there's going to be this deeper, close connection with God through the power of the Spirit that you could not have experienced prior to knowing Jesus. There's a relational intimacy that you and I can find. And, and, and I think what Paul is talking about here is what I would call a subjective assurance that I am one of God's children. All right? He's not saying that if I know God better, like I walk with God more closely and I, I read my Bible and I pray, that that makes me somehow more a child of God than somebody who doesn't. He's not saying that my, my status before God hinges on walking closely with him day by day. Instead, what he's saying is that as I walk with him, as the Spirit transforms my life, I'm going to have just a deeper subjective assurance that I'm one of God's children and he loves me infinitely and perfectly. I will draw close to him and the Spirit will remind my heart, no matter what's going on in my life, that I belong to him. Now, Paul says uh, you, are, you are sons of God, right? You have a spirit of adoption as sons. I want to I be clear here. Paul is not being somehow chauvinistic by being like, uh, this is only reserved for like the guys or something like that. But instead, once you understand the, the, the culture in which Paul is writing, this, this is going to make a lot more sense. And that is in the ancient world, the firstborn son was the primary heir of the family. The firstborn son got a double portion of the inheritance. And so Paul now ties our relationship to God to this status of inheritance. Later in the passage, he'll use the word children more generally. The idea is whether you're male, whether you're female, if you know Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. If you're a child of God, you therefore are a co-heir with Christ of all of God's promises. What does Christ inherit? Everything. The universe, the kingdom of God, perfect access to God because he is God in the flesh. He died and rose again to do what? So that we can know God through Jesus. And so now Paul says, here's the beauty. If you're a child of God, you're connected to Jesus. If you're connected to Jesus, remember Jesus inherits all of God's promises. And what Jesus now does is he says, I'm going to share all of that with you. The glory of God, the presence of God, the kingdom of God, eternal life, forgiveness of sin, relational closeness to God. Jesus says, I'm going to share all of it with you because you're a co-heir with Christ. And so he says, the closer you draw to God's word, to God's presence, the, the more that you are walking with God, the more you're going to have this subjective assurance. As you become more like Jesus, God will remind you more and more that you belong to him. Years ago, my grandfather told me a story about when he was raising his own children. My grandfather had three daughters, one of whom, of course, is my mom. My mom, Debbie, is the oldest, 
she has a, a younger sister named Nancy, and then uh, their youngest sister was named Becky. Now, I'm not going to tell you exactly what years they were growing up, except to say it was well before iPhones, where you could take pictures and, you know, just kind of keep them in your phone or whatever. So they had to take pictures of their kids just on, like, regular cameras, right? So they would take a picture and then go get the film developed or whatever, and, and they'd have these pictures and albums that they'd look at later, especially baby pictures. So my grandfather says, you know, with your mom, with Debbie, we had like a whole album filled with baby pictures, right? All these pictures. And some of you will relate to this. He said, with Nancy, we had, we had fewer because we were busier with the second one. So, so the, the album was a little smaller. And then he goes, unfortunately, with Becky, we just had very few baby pictures at all because things got so busy. Now, now he said what happened was uh, Becky's older sisters decided to use this lack of pho- pho- the photographs as a way of convincing Becky that she really wasn't one of them, that she had joined them a little bit later, right? Now, I remember as a kid, I've got siblings, so, so I remember doing this some, right? So, so he's like, they're, they're like, no, 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 you, you, you came along later, right? The kind of things that kids do, right? So, so he says, Becky comes to me, and she's sad, and, and she's tearing up in this whole, and she's like, am I really, like, do I really belong? He said, here's what I did. I said, hey, Becky, come with me. And he said, I walked her into the, the bathroom, and I said, look at that mirror. And he said, look at my face. Now look at your face. Now look at your face. Look at my face. He goes, is there any doubt that you're my child, you're one of us, you belong with us, right? Paul says this is what the Spirit of God does for the people of God. The more that we begin to look like Jesus, the more we have this assurance, I'm made in God's image, and now I am increasingly reflecting the image of God in Jesus Christ as I draw closer to him so that God says, look at me, look at you. You belong, you're one of us, no matter how you feel, No matter what you did yesterday, no matter what you do today, no matter what you do tomorrow, you are a child of God. Objectively, that is true. Subjectively, we become more aware of that as we live a spirit-directed life. We know deeply that God loves us, that we belong to him. God loves you. Jesus died for you and rose again to demonstrate God's love for you. The Spirit of God now lives within you to say, God loves you. You belong to him. And and Paul says, we have the Spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Some of you know this word, Abba, it's an Aramaic word that was often used in uh, Jewish households uh, for a kid to refer to their father in a real close and familiar type of way. The closest English equivalent might be dad or daddy. Right now, most Jewish people in the first century, they didn't refer to God the Father as Abba. They didn't. They referred to him as Father. But there is one person who referred to him as Abba in the Scripture besides here. It was Jesus. Mark chapter 13, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus, in his moment of suffering, he cries out. He says, Abba, Dad, Daddy, remove this cup from me. Are you with me? Do you care for me? Do you love me? Jesus knew that his father loved him. But he cries out in this moment of suffering. And Paul says, we have this spirit that connects us to Jesus so that although we're not Jesus, we're not deity, 
we have this close relational intimacy with our Father. And the Spirit reminds us of that as we walk with Him. And this is especially important as it was for Jesus in moments of suffering. This is why he says, we remember we are heirs of God with Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, he says, if, or maybe better, since we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. Paul says that this assurance that we're God's children, it's especially important when times are hard. When we're struggling with uh, maybe the hostility of our culture or even our workplace or our family toward Jesus Christ and we, we feel this sense of, of suffering and pain because of that or, or maybe the bank account is low or the marriage is struggling or our kids aren't thriving or our schoolwork is just not working or our future is uncertain. In those moments of suffering, it's especially important to remember God loves us. We are his children. So that as we draw near to him through the power of the Spirit, we have this closeness to God. Paul's not saying our suffering somehow earns us God's favor. Again, he's just simply saying you're going to suffer. 2 Timothy 3.12 says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's an inevitability. Nobody escapes this life without suffering. But in the midst of that, here's what he's going to say, is that suffering will one day give way to glory. That that suffering will work in us a deeper trust in God, a, a stronger hope in the inheritance that we have, and we know that it will one day give way and fade away to the glory of God when we're in his presence. So that that's where Paul takes us in verses 18 to 25, he says, okay, the spirit-directed life is characterized by freedom from sin. We become more like Jesus, closeness to God. We draw closer to God, and we have this deeper assurance of his love, and then this hope for the future, this unshakable hope of our inheritance in the future. So look at verses 18 to 25. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. So he says, one of the lavish blessings that the Spirit pours upon our life as children of God is this unshakable hope for the future that, that no matter what suffering you're going through today, it will give way to glory. And he uses this great phrase. He goes, hey, the, the sufferings we endure, they're not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. What is glory? Well, glory is just the, the weightiness, the significance, the grandeur of God. And Paul says there's going to be a day 
where all of your suffering will fade away and you will live with the glory and the beauty and the light and the weightiness of God's presence forever and ever and ever and ever. And he says, when that day comes, we will look back on our suffering and it will pale in comparison. It won't even be worthy to be compared. The magnitude of all the suffering, think of all the suffering of your life, relationally, physically, financially, spiritually, all the suffering of your life added up from birth to death. Paul says, take it all and it will just be a drop in a tiny little ocean compared to the grandeur of the glory of God. It's not even worthy to be compared. 15 years ago, I think it was 2007, Shannon and I flew to China. At the time, my dad was working there, so we went to visit, uh, not only to, to see uh, where he was, but, al- but also uh, we had some friends who were serving the Lord, who were missionaries nearby, so we flew to, to see them. And uh, as we flew out to China, there were some problems with our, with our flight. Right, And so uh, we had to get on a different flight from what we originally intended. In the process, our luggage got lost. And so we got to uh, China, and we didn't have our bags that we had packed. All we really had was our carry-on stuff, which I think I had one change of clothes. So did Shannon. Uh, we had maybe our toothbrush, right? So, so we were there for, for almost a week. We didn't have the bags that we packed, so I just had to, like, alternate clothing every other day. Like, I would wear it, I would wash it, I would wear the new one, or the clean one, and wash the old one, right, every single day. I had to go to the, the store and pick up a few essentials, and it was frustrating. If you've ever been in that kind of a situation, uh, it's frustrating, especially in a foreign country when I'm like, I don't even really understand how to buy things here, right? I don't understand how to get what I need, right? It's discouraging. It's saddening. So, so after several days, I'm not lying, like we were like in tears over this. It was, it was super frustrating to us and difficult to go throughout that week. They, they finally got our luggage back to us on the last day of the trip. Like they knock on the door, they're like, hey, your luggage. We're like, great, just in time to like carry it back home to the United States, you know? But, but here's what happened. At some point during that process, as we were, you know, ca- kind of calling the airline every day, where's our luggage? Somebody must have written down that these are people that we should try to do something nice for if we can. So we got to the airport to fly back to the United States, and they called my name over the intercom as we were sitting in the terminal. Matt Morton, please come to the ticketing desk. And I thought, my, my first thought was, oh, no. Like, what's going to happen now? But I get up there, and they say, we have upgraded your flight. You've gone from coach to business class. Now, if you've ever uh, seen business class on an overseas flight, uh, it is like truly an entirely different class of existence. You know, if you're back there in coach, it's like they're shoving you in with like hot iron prods, you know, and you're like, get in there, you're eating like hard, cold bread for your meal, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like it's rough back there, right? But, but, but we got upgraded to business class and I'm, I'm really barely exaggerating. It's like we walk up there and there's, there's like a flight attendant for just like 10 of us up there. And she's like, here's the bathroom for just y'all. There's like violin music playing over the speaker. It's quiet. She's like, may I take your coats? She goes and hangs up our coats. And she's like, here's the meal options. You can eat now or you can eat later. Uh, and I'm, these I'm not making up. It was like filet mignon or chicken cordon bleu, right? And you're like, which one do you want? Do you want it now? We sit down in a seat that, of course, is like hugely much more space 
than you have back in coach, right? And so we're flying in this just amazing environment. 14-hour flight. I mean, that's a long flight, right? 14-hour flight. I'm not kidding you. When we landed back in San Francisco, the first leg of our trip after flying uh, back from China, I thought, I want to ask him, can we just take off and fly around for a little while longer? It was that great for me. Now, if I had known when we lost our luggage and we're enduring all of that suffering, that we were going to get to experience that airplane flight in that way, I think I'd have made the trade. If I had known. I didn't know, right? So I endured that suffering with with really no hope other than maybe getting our luggage back. But if I had known the glorious flight to come, what was going to come, I'd have said, all right, I can do this. Because that flight caused the, the minimal suffering pale in comparison. This is what Paul is saying. You do know what is to come. God has revealed it to us through Jesus Christ, that the glory of being in God's presence will so surpass all of the suffering of this life. It won't even be a close contest. And he says, the closer you draw to me, the the spirit will, will reassure you and strengthen that hope in your life. As you suffer, you realize it's not meaningless. I am being prepared for an eternal weight of glory. And Paul says, hey, by the way, all of creation is longing for this day. It's not just you and me longing to be resurrected and redeemed, although we are. It's actually all of creation. And he says the reason is because all of creation was made for humanity. It was made for us. Mankind is the crowning achievement of God's creation, and so all of creation was designed for us to live in relationship to God forever. Unfortunately, sin damaged not only our relationship to God, but it also damaged creation itself. This is why in Genesis 3, God pronounces a curse on the ground, and and this is what Romans 8 is talking about. God subjects creation to this futility because the world doesn't work right If God's people are at odds with him. Isn't that something? The world doesn't work right. The world was designed to function with you and me as God's representatives and image bearers in perfect relationship with him. When that's out of whack, the world itself is broken. So we have this labor and toil. Crops don't grow like they should. Trees don't grow like they should. There are natural disasters and the earth itself turns on the people of earth sometimes and kills us. It's not supposed to be that way. And he says, all of creation now waits for your redemption and mine. Waits for the day Jesus returns, will be resurrected and restored to God. All of creation waits for that because that will be creation's liberation as well. That's Revelation 21 and 22. All of creation is made new Again, and Paul describes it like a woman in childbirth, awaiting, groaning, and awaiting. She's in pain and suffering now, but waiting for the child to arrive. Now, I've never been pregnant or born a child, but I know people who have, including my own wife, right? And some of you in this room, you have. You've, you've had children. You've born children. You've delivered children, and, and it's a painful process, Right? But, but for some of you, uh, you, you remember that pain, but, but for some of you, once the child was born, that pain faded into your distant memory. Right? How do I know that the pain faded away 
in contrast to the beauty and glory of the child. How do I know that's true? Because there's some of you that pretty quickly, after having a child, said, let's have another. Because the pain faded in comparison to the child. The pain was real. The pain was rough. The, the blessing of the child was greater. And Paul says, this is, this is the story of creation. Groaning and in pain and in difficulty and waiting for the child to arrive. The child we celebrate at this time of year, Jesus, born in a manger, who lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and rose from the dead. So we can have eternal life, and the day is coming when he'll arrive again and make all things new. And Paul says, meanwhile, we wait in hope. Hope is not like wishful thinking. Instead, hope is this confidence that he is coming back. But we don't know when. So meanwhile, we persevere. We walk by the Spirit day after day after day. What I do remember about uh, our first child, about having our first kid, our oldest daughter, is that uh, I remember we had like the, the nursery set up. We had the crib set up and uh, the walls were painted. We had decorations on the walls, all those kinds of things. Everything was ready. She was due on September 2nd and she didn't arrive on that day. September 3rd, she didn't arrive. And I remember September 4th, like we're just walking around the house. When is she gonna, when is she gonna show up? Right now, now she's, she's 19. She's pretty timely, but she was pretty late. Right, and we're like, when's she going to come? We couldn't see her, but we knew that she was on the way because all the evidence pointed in that direction. She arrived on September 7th. Not in our timing, but in God's timing. But we had to wait, and especially my wife had to endure. That's what Paul says. You know the day is coming. So endure. And as you walk more closely with God, the Spirit will remind you that day is coming. Suffering will give way to glory. Meanwhile, remember, you're a child of God, and as a child of God, God is remaking you, reshaping you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, into his character. As you walk by the Spirit day by day, the Spirit will lavish upon you the blessings of the presence of God with the hope of an eternal inheritance. The gospel is good news because the spirit-directed life is a life beyond compare. It's like no other life. And so let me ask you a couple of questions then. Are you living by the spirit? I asked this at the beginning. Are you walking by the spirit? Living a spirit-directed life day by day by day. Are you putting yourself in a position where you can hear the voice of God, reading his word, meditating on it, memorizing it, spending time in prayer to know him, to communicate with him, to hear from him, worshiping regularly with the community of saints as we speak into one another's lives. Are you living by the Spirit so the Spirit can transform you? And remind you of who you are in Jesus Christ. Do you believe your father loves you? Do you believe your father loves you? The greatest act of love that God demonstrated toward us is he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and to rise from the dead. This subjective assurance of the spirit that indwells us that says, Abba, Father, 
that only is available to those who know Jesus Christ. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ and you're not sure that you have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you can know that you have eternal life and this relationship with God simply by believing, by by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, believing in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and offer you eternal life. If you have not yet believed in him, you're welcome to come talk with me. You can write down on one of those prayer cards that you'd like to talk with somebody about Jesus and we'll give you a call or an email. We would love to talk with you about that. But if you know Jesus Christ, do you live with this confident assurance that God loves you? His love for you is constant. No matter how you feel, no matter what you did yesterday, no matter what you do today, no matter what you do tomorrow, he wants you to walk with him not so you can earn his love, but because he wants the opportunity to speak into your life to tell you that he loves you. So are you living a spirit-directed life and that is that producing in your life this rock-solid confidence? God loves me, he's transforming me, and I have the hope of an eternal inheritance that will never fade away. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. We pray that we would be men and women walk by the Spirit, transform us into the image of Jesus Christ, and give us a confident assurance that you love us, that you're changing us, and that Jesus is coming back. And all of the blessings of an eternal relationship with you in your kingdom and in your presence, all of that is ours. In Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray all of these things,